0: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Graham Richardson.
1: And welcome to the show. I am Graham Richardson, in for Evan. I hope you're having a good day. Uh, They are not having a good day in Florida. Um, This is the lull after the storm. And if these storms, the history of these storms teaches us anything, is that it's difficult for first responders, for cameras, for journalists to get in in the hours after the storm passes. And with that kind of a storm surge, I I can't imagine what people are going to find. Like, you've got boats floating, you've got houses floating, and, you know, the reference points, of course, are Charlie and also in Louisiana, Katrina. And there's more people in Florida, too. I mean, Katrina really slammed Louisiana, but this is just, um, when you land as a four, almost a five, in a highly populated area like Florida, it is going to be very, very damaging, obviously. Um, We're going to speak with uh, someone on the ground there. Connor Powell is a producer and correspondent with CNN. He's in Orlando area. And, you know, uh, he is obviously well aware of the wide swath of the storm, Orlando not hit nearly as hard as south of Tampa, but given the size of the storm and given the width of it basically crossing the entire state and churning just so much water over Florida, um, the, the the pictures are just extraordinary. Um, looking right now on CTV News Channel, you're seeing the live cameras um, recording the storm as it blows in. And, and you've got to remember that, I mean, that that's a very narrow view because it's just not safe. You can't get out there to see the other damage. And I just think um, in the next few hours, we are going to see a tremendous, tremendous damage. We're also going to head to Newfoundland for Fiona um, aftermath. Boy, add up the damage, right? Like th- this is uh, when you're losing shoreline and losing houses on a regular basis now it's just it's fundamentally shifting how the whole economy has to respond to these disasters it takes in many cases it takes years to rebuild people and it it, it isn't it's a bit of a cliche but it, it feels like and it is in fact we are seeing more and more of this a very interesting exchange on cnn the other day with don lemon uh i've i i do not know the name of the expert Um, But he was with the National uh, Hurricane Center and Don Lemon's the anchor at CNN, uh, suggesting this is a direct result of climate change. And the official sort of stopped him at that and said, you know, climate change is an overall factor, but you can't say one event is because of climate change. I mean, I think his point was that you can't say Hurricane Ian happened because of climate change, but when you, I don't know about you, but when I hear things like the temperature of the water has gone up in our oceans, you know, like I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, it's a bit warmer. Um, And I think we're all waking up to what that actually means, whether that's, movement of wildlife, whether that's Fiona itself. Normally Fiona churns out to the ocean and it, it dies or it weakens significantly because the water's colder before heading to Newfoundland and, um, Atlanta, Canada, like it did. And in this particular instance, it did not, it hit hard and it was stronger, partially, perhaps, maybe because of warmer water. So on any number of levels, and it's difficult because this gets sucked into our politics, but at any number of levels, any number of events that we're seeing, um, you you do have to ask the question, given the warmer temperatures, the record-breaking temperatures we've had, is that having an impact on these extraordinary events? I mean think about last summer in BC towns basically burned to the ground that's not normal that's not that doesn't happen every 10 15 20 years and those kinds of temperatures i was in BC just before the heat dome descended and locally people said we've never seen mid 40s here mid 40s in some cases and that's not that's not the humidex like they were hitting in the interior of BC 41, 42 degrees that summer. So I'm of course, no scientist and I'm no expert on this, but I'm just, you know, you start to see how things are connected, right? And when they're talking about off the coast of Florida, water temperatures of 85 to 90 degrees that are slightly warmer, um, well, slightly depending on your perspective, than they would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago, that has a direct impact on the storm. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to go back to Newfoundland, Port Basque, and speak with someone whose house was destroyed, his parents' house was destroyed by Fiona. Um, he's helping move out and I'm always here and I'm in Ottawa and here in this part of the country, uh, we had a tremendous storm this summer. Uh, sorry, this spring in May, and they called it a derecho. It, while well, everybody in Ontario, it basically swept across the province. Unlike a burst of a tornado, it hit a wide swath of the province, thousands of people affected, and people here are still attempting to recover from that. Um, not only to get funded and what level of funding they're going to get, but also trying to rebuild. So the people in Newfoundland and um, all over. Atlantic Canada, this, they are facing a long road back and all of us move on, right? We all move on unless you're directly impacted and, you know, we'll move on from Ian as well and stop consuming the pictures. It's just, when you're on the ground after having your life turned upside down by this, um, it takes, it takes a tremendous amount of effort, money, and time to recover from it. Um, And it is something that is life altering, right? Like, you know, I often think about people with medical conditions or people who need special treatment or people who uh, may need uh, help getting around, like once a hurricane or a big storm hits and your life is turned upside down, it is a tremendously disruptive thing, tremendously. So we're going to check in on Fiona. We're going to check in on Hurricane Ian. We're also going to have Scott Reed in later in the program, um, for overhyped and underplayed, of course, CTV news political commentator. Uh, Pierre Polyev is getting a bump in the polls. He is up in several polls significantly, five to seven to 3%, depending on which poll you take. But there is a trend here. And Scott has said that he had a really good couple of weeks. So we're going to ask him about that and what he needs to do to continue that momentum. What are the risks for the new political leader and the new conservative party? It is his party. You know, There there is no doubt about that now. There is no, you know, unaffected conservatives or people who are unhappy and the charade camp, uh, you know, uh, he's got to reach out. There, there's none of that. This is a, it goes without saying almost, this is a unanimous party now that is fully behind the leader. And if Trudeau stays, what does that campaign look like? I mean, I think it's going to be a campaign for the ages. Not only because of Polyev and Trudeau, but you have Singh in the mix as well. And those three, the dynamic playing there, um, will be something else. Normally a leader of a party who hasn't run a national election campaign before has, you know, a stumbly start and it takes a campaign to get under his belt before he or she is really ready to take on a governing party. I think we saw that with Aaron O'Toole. Um, it, it, was, it was, I wouldn't say it was a flat campaign, but it was, it was an odd campaign. This guy has been campaigning Polyev for his entire career. Uh, his performance on camera as a politician is off the charts. His ability to cut through a lot of the noise and the crap and reach people should be very very concerning to liberals and i know most are concerned because he is hitting the ground running i'm graham richardson in for evan when we come back we will head to newfoundland and we will talk with someone moving out in portabasque stay with us
0: It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Great to have you with us this afternoon. I am Graham Richardson, in for Evan until 2 o'clock. Hope you're having a good day on this Thursday. uh, They are not in Newfoundland and in parts of Atlantic Canada. The Prime Minister there yesterday, along with various uh, ministers, attempting to assess how bad it is. And it's not great. Here is Justin Trudeau yesterday.
2: The Premier uh, announced a $30 million package. The federal government will be part of that. Uh, We're going to continue to step up as necessary. The one thing that we've seen already is the level of strength of community as people have been there to support each other. Uh, The federal government, the provincial government, municipal leadership. uh, We're all going to be working together to make sure that people uh, get settled by winter.
1: And, of course, Newfoundland... uh, renowned around the world for their generosity and coming together at times uh, like this. Extraordinary challenges. Corey Munden's a resident of Port of Baskin, Newfoundland. Uh, he's on the line now. Your parents' house was destroyed, and, and you're moving them out today. Tell, tell me about how bad it is, Corey.
3: Uh, well, in actual fact, I mean, we were a bit fortunate. Uh, it's a two-story home, so the lower half of the level of the house was... Uh, you know, struck and and just uh, just destroyed basically. I think that's the easiest word to use. Yeah. Uh, so the, their personal contents. Uh, they love they loved living upstairs, so they could look out over the ocean. So, thankfully, their personal contents were upstairs, so we're able to retrieve those today. So, yeah, um, I you could probably hear an excavator going in the background. The municipality is here trying to clean up all the debris um, and on the coastline. So my parents' house are right on the coastline, been here for 48 years and, uh, mm-hmm. without incident. And, uh, so they're doing a big cleanup here today.
1: How are your parents doing?
3: Remarkably well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the strength is unbelievable, probably better than I am to be honest with you. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think they've come to reality, uh, that this is a, a new, new beginning for them that, I, they couldn't imagine now coming back to live in this particular area um, because they're, they're just too shook up over what took place. So uh, they're living with me. That is, I guess that's going to be for quite some time until we figure out what the next step is. We don't know that yet.
1: How long have they been there? And it sounds like you're within spitting distance of the ocean.
3: Yeah, so this, pop, this property probably goes back over 100 years. Uh, my grandfather settled here. And then, like many places in this area, you know, um, a family land was given to their son or daughter to occupy. So, mm-hmm. in this case, my father was given a piece of land from his father, and he decided to build a house uh, just just a little bit closer to the ocean than my grandfather's original house, which is still standing and, and had little impact. Uh, so, the, the house itself been there for 48 years. I'm 50, and I was two years old when we uh, moved into this place. Yeah.
1: And that's a lot of family history um had had they ever seen has your family ever seen something like fiona and and tell me how it hit the house
3: so no they they haven't um but in the same token uh for the last number of years i mean you know we've been closely paying attention to climate change uh recognizing you know what's happening around the world with water so my father invested heavily in armor stone, uh, big rocks, basically mm. uh, behind the house. So, you know, took every preventive measure you thought possible. Uh, erected concrete walls, everything. And uh, there's no evidence of that here today. So, uh, like, it washed we, away. What gone? Well, it didn't wash away. It washed into the live. washed into the lower half of the house. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's just we we had a beautiful patio. Uh, you know, there's been weddings took place back here. Uh, again, you have to understand. I, I've been following social media, and and people around Canada are questioning. Well, why would you police a house there? This is unprecedented. No, this no, this is no. not this is not the norm. This and is... it's
1: you know what, like ignore social media. They're not picking yeah, up after their true. parents, and they're not they're not uh, they're not uh, trying to get their parents back into a safe place. So just ignore no. all that crap. But for sure, um, and I understand. Like it's interesting that your dad took took measures to. Um, to mitigate because of storms and extreme weather and and it kind of it's it the way you were speaking about it it's just it's just not enough because of the power of the storm.
3: no, it's not, and I mean like again you could probably hear an excavator going behind me uh no it it certainly wasn't. My father actually is an interesting story. my father has an invoice he hasn't paid for it yet for stone that came last week. Oh. So, yeah. and you know, it's we're trying to find a bit of humor in this all yeah. because we, that's all we really have. Yeah. But I have to tell you, some I have to tell you a quick story that you know I put on Facebook yesterday. I needed some help uh, to help move my parents out, and we had, you know, sorry, it's okay, we just had so many people come out to help us today. We moved the essential we moved practically two houses. Uh, since 8.30 this morning, is 2 p.m. today. Uh, That's the number of people we had show up here. One of the people that showed up, I'm not sure if you've been following the footage, is a person, the famous Blue House, they call it. It's been out on the point, completely lost, destroyed. The man and his family walked away with just clothes on their back. He showed up here today, helping us move. We had another guy, lost his entire contents of his home. He was here today, helping us move. Uh, Just unbelievable emotional day here
1: that's newfoundland right
3: it is that's what we're you no know, that's what it's all about that's what he said to me he said you know that's what it's all about I uh, you know i can't retrieve anything out of my house but i can help you retrieve stuff out of yours so let's get on with it so uh, very inspirational um i just you know the, the acts of kindness is just unbel- unbelievable
1: and if i understand you correctly for the first time since your grandfather settled, your parents are moving away from the ocean.
4: Well, that,
3: yeah, for sure. Like we don't know, we don't know yet the outcome of this. Um, you know, we're we're told there's no insurance, uh, even though the home was com- was well insured. They they had enough insurance to rebuild and uh, to provide their contents with ease, no trouble. Um, but you know we're being denied insurance because uh, this is considered a surge and surges are not covered uh, so we don't know where to from here we're hoping fed funds some funds comes in to help them rebuild a place in a in a different part of the neighborhood or we, we haven't gotten to that stage yet
1: so if I understand and I just I know this is nitty- gritty in its early days so the insurance policy will not cover it because right because it's 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 a surge from the ocean
3: correct um wind damage you're fine if you have wind damage you're you're okay if you have floods you're fine seawater rising tides i've read the policy inside out um you know i am i'm, I'm I, my career is in banking so i'm familiar with legal documents and everything else so i read the policies inside out and you know uh there are exclusions and exclusions include rising tide, and surge, and, uh, you know.
1: So zero, nothing?
3: Zero, nothing. No,
1: the, the, some, the government's going to the government's oh, gonna sure. have to help. They can't, you, can't, you oh. can't just take things from people like that. I mean, they, uh, especially given the mitigation your dad tried to do, right?
3: I'm looking across at a neighbor. The house has been there equally as long. And I'm peering right into through his, ba- I'm peering right into the basement. The full concrete wall is gone. I mean, and again, there's armor stone all around uh, this, this coastline um, uh, to help mitigate these things. So, I mean, you know, some—I I mean, sure, I, I don't—I somebody's got to kind of come in and, and assist with this. You can't expect somebody that has been paying insurance for 48 years, expected to be covered, never heard of this exclusion or peril. Of, uh, of, uh, surge. And, and I mean, you know, I, I would think one of the first questions you would ask when you Google map the property to ensure it is you realize you're on the coastline, you realize you're not covered for, um, for ocean waves <laughs> damages. I think that would be probably the number one question is no different than when you insure an automobile and you say, I think you should have glass coverage. Yeah. I don't think that's too much to ask no. from a sales from a sales and advice perspective from insurance mm-hmm. companies.
1: Fair point. Corey, Monday. an incredible day for you. Uh, really appreciate your time speaking with us and uh, we wish your parents and everybody in Porto Basque the best.
3: Yes, and you know, our hearts here in Newfoundland are going out to those in Florida that are experiencing uh, a terrible, another hurricane going through their place. Uh, I mean, the images are gut-wrenching. Uh, We can't help but think um, what they're going through because we're experiencing it firsthand.
1: Thank you, Corey. uh,
3: Our prayers are with them. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.
0: This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk
1: Network. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, uh, we just had an extraordinary discussion with Corey Munden. His family, his parents, have been washed out of their home in Basque, Newfoundland. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to uh, play a bit of that because it is just extraordinary people in Newfoundland pitching in to help out. Uh, One couple helped out, move his family out, move his parents out today, um, and they had lost everything and only had the clothes on their back. Um, We want to turn our attention now to Hurricane Ian. Uh, The devastation there is becoming uh, more and more clear as the light and the cameras and the first responders get into very uh, highly damaged and flooded areas. Extraordinary pictures now of the Four, almost a five that made landfall yesterday. Connor Powell is a producer and correspondent with CNN. He joins us now on the line from the Orlando area. Connor, uh, I know you're in the Orlando area, not hardest hit, but still the entire state has been affected by this monster storm. Talk about how uh, widespread the damage is from what you know. We are just trying to get Connor on the line. Let's make sure that uh, we can. He is in Orlando. And of course, the uh, pictures we have been seeing, a lot of them coming from south of Tampa. And we're just having a little bit of difficulty reaching him. So we'll uh, try to get that uh, going in the next few moments. Um, as I said, it moved ashore as a four, as we saw yesterday. Uh, bridges and piers have been taken out. Um, and what you've got to remember is that the damage does not become clear immediately with a storm this size um, because it takes a long time to assess exactly how bad it is. And you don't hit a, you don't hit a four into uh, something like Florida without major damage. And apparently we are uh, not able to make contact with him. He's a very busy guy. We understand that. And oftentimes communications are rough. Uh, right after a storm like this. Um, and we wanted to, we wanted to replay a portion of our discussion we just had a moment ago with Corey Munden, who is in Port of Basque, Newfoundland, if you're just joining us. His parents have been washed out of their home and he put out a call for help and was overwhelmed by the response today they're moving out, and it's not clear what's next for them.
3: Then we had you know sorry okay we just had so many people come out to help us today. We moved the we moved practically two houses uh, since 830 this morning is 2 pm today. Uh, that's the number of people we had show up here. One of the people that showed up, I'm not sure if you've been following the footage is a person the famous blue house they call it. It's been out on the point completely lost destroyed man and his family walked away with just a clothes on their back. He showed up here today.
1: Extraordinary stories out of Newfoundland. I understand we do have uh, Connor back on the line. Connor Powell with CNN. Connor, you're in the Orlando area. We were asking about how widespread the damage is statewide. Are you getting a better picture today?
4: Yeah, we are. I mean, at Orlando, where I'm at, has had a lot of rain. They're saying it can be upwards of uh, 20 to 24 inches when it's all said and done, which is a ton of rain. We're standing in a spot there is some localized flooding of two to three, maybe five feet of uh, flooding downtown Orlando. But, you know, the real destruction, the real damage in Florida is along the coastal area. And that's what we're starting to get a a glimpse of what it looks like. And, you know, the first images coming from Naples and from Fort Myers, I mean, there's just the beach area, the waterfront area has just been demolished. I mean, there are huge amounts of property damage, infrastructure damage. Um, you know, and they're still conducting re- search and rescue operations right now. The Coast Guard's still out there. Florida authorities are still out there looking for people to, who didn't leave to try to, to try to help. And this was a huge storm. I and mean, this is a category four storm that smashed into the, uh, the, the Gulf coast of Florida. And it was almost a category five, but it brought huge amounts of, uh, you know, waves and, and water along that coast and we've dumped a ton of rain across Florida. And we're still, you know, the storm's still dumping rain across Florida. So, you know, when it's all said and done, they're, they're, they're talking about billions of dollars worth of damage from this storm.
1: Mm. I Just watching here in Canada, some live pictures, I think, from CNN of um, helicopter footage, as you say, along the coast, uh, piers and, uh, you know, uh, fully destroyed beach communities that um, you can tell, First responders recovery hasn't even touched it yet. I'm assuming, given the population in Florida, that pretty much is happening in lots of places across the state.
4: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, the worst hit so Florida ever since you know the, the last couple uh, you know decades has built infrastructure that should withstand you know the the, 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 the most extreme winds of hurricanes, and so you know it, it has when it comes to battling the wind, it, you know, it does very well. Uh, they've built for it. They've changed the the building codes here uh, across the state, but you, there's not much you can do about flooding. It's not much you can do about storm surge. Uh, if you're, you know, if your place is on the coast and the water comes up, there's not much you can do. And, and that's really what this storm brought was a huge storm surge. And other places like Orlando, yeah, we're, we're seeing some localized flooding. You know, there's some rooftops and some signs that have been damaged, but, here in Orlando, we, we're not seeing anywhere near the type of damage that they're seeing along the coast because that storm surge just, you know, it, it sucked the water out and then it just threw it right back onto the coast. Mm. And, you know, that's the type of thing that destroys the foundations of buildings that you have to, to just do. rip them down and start over again.
1: Connor Powell with CNN, appreciate your time today. Thank you.
4: Thank you. All right. Um, and
1: if you've seen any of the pictures, it is just um, devastating. You can't even, you can't even put it into words. And again, uh, in the next few hours, I know we're going to get a better picture of it. Um, because right now you're getting periphery pictures, you're getting periphery sense of, of how bad it is. Um, and oftentimes with storms, this size, it takes in some cases, a couple of days to fully assess how bad it is. When you're talking about piers and wharfs that have been, you know, I, I saw pictures of cement wharfs basically shorn off uh, either by waves or wind and just the posts are left. Uh, what does it do to buildings around uh, those wharfs in those areas? I mean, they're all flattened. Um, so it, it is going to be, you know, an extraordinary challenge to rebuild, uh, particularly given the number of people in Florida. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind, we all attention especially in news to numbers oh it's a four it's a five like i've covered a three that was absolutely devastating because it parked and it just dumped rain and it didn't leave over mexico and so you're going to see that kind of thing here like the storm is actually still active it's been downgraded but it is dumping a lot of rain and as it moves up the u.s East coast, we're going to continue to watch, uh, what kind of, what other kinds of damage it's going to be these storms. It's always amazing that, you know, a few days later you get bands of them coming through parts of Canada. I don't think that's going to happen with this particular storm, um, path. Um, but you know, it's, it's just when, when you see the breadth of it and the other thing I wanted to highlight as well, just before we get to break, you know, Corey Munden, who is our person from Newfoundland who spoke to us, his parents in Porta Basque were basically the bottom of their house was destroyed, the neighbors, you can see right through the house. I mean, he's, he's in banking and he knows the policy and they are out of house. They have no insurance to cover this because it is a storm surge coming up from the ocean and they're not, they're not covered. It's in, it's in the policy. So. You know, and like, they've been there for three generations and people say, well, why'd you build a house there? You know, like, it's just that simple. And you heard from Corey, his father has actually been trying to mitigate floodwaters by putting in stone and putting in rock and building up walls and all of it washed into the house. Like the power of mother nature and how things are changing uh, before our eyes is just extraordinary. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment.
0: The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. Hey, we're gonna change gears a bit here. Um... Tim Hortons... Like... Okay, I'm gonna talk about the Tim Hortons clothing, okay? all right. Just, you know, harass me online for that. (laughs) You're giving them exactly what they want! You're talking about it on radio. It's free media for them. Okay, so they're coming out with, like, Tim Hortons clothing. Okay? Uh, Tim's run. And if you have a look at it online, it's young, it's, uh, you know, something that they're not targeting me at 52 years old. Let me put it to you that way. Like they're trying to move away from the hockey dad and mom. eh? They're trying to, trying to be a, you know, a trendsetter, a, like, look at me in my Tim Horton's jacket. Really? Are people, and then, and then did didn't Samantha, did you say like they sell out? Like people just, they fly off the shelves.
4: Yeah, there was another merch line, I guess, that they um they introduced and yeah, within minutes they said it was sold out. So people are buying them, I guess. Like they you, like they're it.
1: targeting you. <laughs> they're young. You're
4: hip. You're you're the demo.
1: Would I you know. buy this?
4: Uh, personally I wouldn't. Um like Do you I You know love,
1: friends who would?
4: I don't think so. None of my friends. I don't think so either.
1: They're not like, into big logos, are
4: they? No. Walking around with the Tim Hortons jacket on? I don't know anyone that has bought uh, Tim's clothing. No, but it goes the knows. other
1: way. It goes like take off the labels. It seems anyway. Uh, so seven ten ten. If you've seen it, the other catch here is that this fabulous jacket has a breakfast sandwich warming pouch in it, because you know, like you can't, you can't have any new clothing without the sandwich warming pocket. And I'm sure the marketers out there will just roll their eyes at me because it's like, it's not about what you need. It's about what you want. And that's a little catch that people might find very, very interesting. And it might encourage them to come in through the drive-thru and order a bacon and egg, whatever. I don't know. It's Tim's Run Club. So it's it's $64 to $99, $100, T-shirt, hatch, merch. Um... The uh, the chief marketing officer says it's it's maximum comfort in case you're you know you're going through the drive-through and and you want to keep your sandwich warm. Um, it, it honors the Canadians who who uh, who hit Tim's on on the run. My kids are in their mid twenties; they would never touch Tim Hortons apparel. Tim Hortons brand is for older people. I bet older people are buying the stuff, trying to look hip. Okay, maybe. Yeah, so well, that's one take on it. Um I I don't know. I don't know. I I, I I the the extraordinary push to get us to buy more stuff that, you know, if you're connected to Tim's and you're connected to Tim Horton's coffee or whatever coffee you buy, you remember you like for years now I happen to drink Starbucks. Okay. I take one a day. Yes, I drink Starbucks. Okay, so we're gonna do this political division thing, Tim Horton's voters versus Starbucks voters. Okay, right. Whatever. So but what struck me, like they kept coming out with these, these, these uh carry cups, these cups that are permanent, you know, before COVID, and they stopped taking them when they're but they're like $50, $60 some of these cups, like these really fancy stainless steel, $45. And people were buying them. They and and they still are. Oh, it keeps, it's a special way to keep your coffee hot. It's way better than, it's technologically advanced. So I guess this is kind of a version of that. And they're, they're hooking it to their product by having a sandwich warming pouch in there. But here's the thing too, that, that confuses me. I associate Tim's with early mornings, taking my kids to hockey when everything else is closed and they're open at 4am or whatever and doing the drive through because there's you know and i do like their coffee it's it's good coffee i like the dark roast myself um and so i understand them trying to get away from that kind of you know those wholesome ads and that sort of thing that were always a part of hockey night in canada for instance but i i don't know maybe maybe they they've got they've obviously got research that says this is going to um this is going to take off Some more text. Tim Horton's clothing sounds... Oh, no, we were... (laughs) If they're talking about previous clothing flying off the shelves, that's because it was Justin Bieber clothes. Yeah, right? Remember the Biebs Biebs, uh, getting in there? People were buying them either because they're fans or on speculation they might have some value. Tim Horton's is a desperate, non-Canadian garbage (laughs) company incapable of serving beyond mediocre coffee and donuts. It's forced to manipulate soft consumer minds and members of the media... There's a vast conspiracy here. Uh, that's a bit harsh on Tim's coffee, don't you think? I, I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's horrendous. I do think they're trying to uh, diversify. Remember McDonald's and the famous ten thousand uh, dollar pizza ovens to compete with all the pizza joints out there, and then they abandoned that and went back to what was good. Maybe Tim Hortons will do all this stuff. You know, and, all, and and then they'll end up going back to donuts and chili and keeping the, the menu simple. I don't think they will, but uh, Tim Horton's apparel, no thank you. The warmer pocket is marketing nonsense. Yeah. Let me tell you some, something about my 20-something children nearly killed themselves to get a Kirkland sweatshirt when they came out. It all depends on the brand, I think. Really? The Costco brand? Really? I don't know why people... Yeah, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But honestly, can we just have some consensus here? The warming pocket is is a lame idea. Like, I don't know. Like, if you're going to buy a breakfast sandwich or a hot sandwich, like, you're going to eat it right away. You don't keep it for later and keep it in a jacket. Do you? I don't think you do. And by the way, as we all know, those breakfast morning sandwiches, generally speaking, 90, 80, 90% of the clientele are hungover. It's good hangover food. No, I'm just kidding. All sorts of people have it, but I, you know, the egg in the eighties, the egg McMuffin with ketchup for me, well, oh, that took the edge off. I'll tell you that. Uh, okay. We've got a couple more. more. Uh, hold on a sec. I'm a construction worker and I can't wait to pick one up. All right, Ken, good for you. The further away the corporate headquarters is, the more disconnected Tim Hortons becomes. And they are not owned, aren't, are they not owned by a giant Brazilian conglomerate? Yes, they are. Um, uh, yes, they are. But Ken, the construction worker, can't wait to pick one up. And I bet you Ken works early in the morning. And they, uh, they oftentimes are them. That's my pet peeve, by the way. I'm an early morning riser. And I can't tell you the number of times around my region, Quebec, Ontario, uh, the national capital region, I'll roll into a small town. And the coffee store isn't open. Like they're open at like 7.30 or 8 on a weekend. Like your business is coffee. Like, aren't you open at five? Like, wouldn't you be open at five? You'd think, I think you'd be open at five. It's just my pet peeve. It's my pet peeve. The guys I, I hang out with, we, we ride bikes and it's just like, don't get them talking about the coffee place. Cause you know, so, um, they lost me when they dropped the Walnut Crunch. Yes, yeah, boy, people get attached to certain things on the menu. And I, I'm not a walnut crunch guy, but if they drop something, it's, you know. But hey, look, Jess, you know what? They've got uh, they've got a jacket with a warming pouch coming out. So that'll make up for the walnut crunch. So there we are. We've chatted about Tim Hortons for an exorbitant amount of time, made fun of it, had texts coming in saying it's a dumb idea, but they win because we're talking about it. So enjoy your jackets if you get them.
0: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show, today with special guest host Graham Richardson.
1: Welcome to the show. Great to be with you at uh, on a beautiful Thursday out there where I am. I hope uh, you're having a great day. Uh, it is Thursday. That means uh, Scott Reed is here. Overhyped. Create jobs and opportunity
0: In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed.
1: Mr. Reed, great to have you with us as always. How are you?
5: Just great, sir. How are you?
1: I'm well, I'm well. Um, uh, Pierre's, Pierre Polyev's had a good couple of weeks, and I know you talked about this previously. This is, a, uh, is the bounce post-leadership uh, there again, because initially it didn't appear it was going to be there. Do you think it's more than just the him taking over the party? Is there something going on here that we've got a bunch of polls that show him up on the Liberals?
5: Yeah, I, I think there is something more. Um, I mean, I don't want to take th- anything away from him in, in terms of the effort they've made in the first couple of weeks, but I think you can equally read these polls as um, uh, uh, as damning on the on the government. To be blunt, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I I ask myself, would he be getting this kind of bounce if right direction, wrong direction wasn't going so? aggressively against the government? Would he be getting this kind of bounce if the government um, had a more coherent, consistent, um, you know, un- mistakable message concerning cost of living. Would he be getting this bounce if you know the government was as focused in its agenda as Pierre Polyev has been in his messaging? Um mm. because he has had a good two weeks. He's been laser beamed on cost of living in the economy. And no one has even bothered to try to interrupt him. Like I don't understand why the liberals aren't, you know, uh putting a stick in his spokes. Like mm. he's just been given more or less free reign. They don't check him on stuff. They don't push back and they don't set any kind of little traps it's a minority parliament you know set a couple of traps and then you know legislatively for them, uh wedge them on some core issues and and do it early like you know as soon as a goalie comes on to the ice in relief what do you do you put the puck on them hard and fast liberals haven't been doing that to them so i'm not surprised by these numbers but you know the liberals should be concerned by them
1: i i see a bit of pushback from um uh, Garrettson online, on social media stuff, like, but it doesn't feel like it's a it's a PMO driven sort of strategy to hit Polyev where he's vulnerable, like, what are you talking about when you say spoke, spoke in the wheels?
5: Well, it does look like maybe they've designated Mark Garrettson to be and he's a backbench MP for folks who don't know from Kingston in yeah. the Islands, so, you know, maybe they've got him, um, you know, doing social media, trying to sort of throw a little dirt at him. The challenge is that, you know, it's it's not is not something that Paulyev is forced to respond to. It's not something that he's forced to react to. So it doesn't really have the desired effect. And you ask me, what what am I talking about? What would it be? It would be something that forces him to shift his cadence, that makes him move. So you know, challenge him on you know an issue that's going to be uncomfortable for him. Don't let him talk uninterrupted about cost of living. Um, don't just yell crypto every like you know a couple of days and hope that it sticks on him. You know, put him in an uncomfortable spot like you know I know we're probably going to talk about Alberta well in a week or so Danielle Smith is going to become the, the uh, premier of Alberta she says she wants to campaign on you know <laughs> on, on effectively withdrawing from uh, federal jurisdiction you know ignore federal laws that she doesn't like federal regulations she doesn't like you know stick that to Pierre Polyev. why aren't the liberals saying you know this is outrageous all federal politicians of all stripe have an obligation to stand up and defend the n- notion of a, Nash, of a nation, mm-hmm. where's where's Polyev on this? Like, do stuff to jam him, make him uncomfortable. Right now, he's just walking down the street and saying cost of living. No one's even trying to throw take the, you know, take the song sheet out of his hand.
1: Do you think that they're sort of drinking the same Kool Aid that that he he's just not electable in parts of Ontario because these recent polls don't seem to back that up. In fact, there, there's some curiosity there, some interest.
5: I I doubt, I don't know, but I doubt that they are that benign to it. I I doubt that their attitude, they being the prime minister's office and his team around him, I doubt very, very much that they just shrug their shoulders and say he's no threat. I think they recognize that he's a threat, Um, but they've decided that they don't want to expend any of the prime minister's political capital on that. You know, it, it and that and you can make an argument, but then have someone do it. Um create, like I say, you don't have to have the prime minister necessarily championing these these traps, but have someone like, you know, let's take as an example, uh, take Dominic LeBlanc, right? He's mm-hmm. a longtime friend of mine, Minister of, Interna- of, of Inter- <laughs> International of Intergovernmental Affairs. He's a guy who has got all sorts of political game bilingual, bicultural, fluent in both languages, quick on his feet, clever, funnier than hell. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the kind of guy that could scrap with uh, Pierre Polyev. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so why don't they unleash somebody with that kind of power on him? And then you can preserve the prime minister for for specific moments. But right now they're they're not doing enough to challenge Polyev's stride. And so don't be surprised. And, uh, you know, and obviously combined with a failing, you know, a failing economy with a cost of living crisis that does not appear as though it's gripped uh, the government uh, to the same degree it's gripping Canadians.
1: Yeah. And uh, I, I I just, I, I don't like, I, I don't under- underestimate Trudeau. You always say that and it's true. Like, if, are we convinced now he's going to stay? Like he said he's going to stay. We're getting closer and closer to the point where if he is going to stay, if he's not going to stay he's going to hurt the party if he doesn't make an announcement. Where are you on that? Like it it seems to me that he is he's sticking and it's going to be an epic fight in the in the election campaign with these two.
5: I assume that he's staying. I think mm-hmm. that it was noticeable you had a two-day um swing of news a couple weeks back just before the cabinet retreat. Um, you know, word came out that um, Christian Freeland isn't necessarily gunning for the top job if anything she's looking at the NATO secretary generalship I don't think that came up by accident I don't think that that was discussed by accident and then the very following day at the cabinet retreat the prime minister told his ministers that he's sticking around i so I take that at all at face value and i'll I'll, I'll amplify it it's bruised and you know beaten up uh, with incumbency as Trudeau might be um I think he's the only liberal that can compete for uh, a good number of seats Mm. in Quebec. Um, I don't think any of the likely alternatives are going to be able to compete for those seats against, you know, uh, a sort of a resurgent conservative movement, uh, a newly complicated political circumstance there with the CAC winning, what's going to look like a a big majority again. Mm. So I, I think Trudeau has to stay. And, um,
1: Well, and the other thing, too, uh, is a new leader going against someone like Polly Ebb in, you know, defending an incumbent government. We've seen that before, and it's very, very difficult. I mean, Kathleen Wynne was successful in 2014, as you know, but, I mean, it was, that was a surprise to many, and it's not easy to do, especially not on the national stage.
5: No, it's very difficult to do. I mean, we won in 2004 um, after uh, Uh Paul Martin took over. Um, But, you know, it was obviously difficult. Kathleen did it in in 2014 in Ontario, but it's a real challenge. And I I mean, let's just be honest about it. When you take a look at the likely candidates, those that get mentioned, I don't think any of them walk into the arena with the instant gravitas and an electoral appeal that Trudeau has. Uh Again, you know, he he may be beaten up in incumbency, but the has shown that he can throw the campaign on his back. Um, you know, people get confused when you're in government for, after a few years, they get confused between uh, someone that's a really good minister and what it takes to be a really good leader, a political leader. They're not inherently the same set of credentials and qualities. Um, and I think there's a little bit of government-itis around uh, the Liberals these days. And uh, they'd be making a big mistake if they uh, they thought they'd be trading up by getting rid of Trudeau, in my opinion.
1: Scott Reid, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. Cheers. All right, that's Scott Reid, CTV's political commentator, um, one of them, and uh, of course, former communications director for Paul Martin. uh, In the thick of it, uh, in the uh, election campaigns uh, past and with an eye on the future ones, it's going to be something. I I, I agree with him. I I think Trudeau's going to stay. Been wrong before, I'll be wrong again, but I I think it just looks like he's going to stay and it will be... uh, boy, it'll be something. Um, When we come back, I want to talk about pay transparency. How much do you make? And should it be shared with more people? I want your texts on that 71010. Are you telling everybody what you make? Apparently, this is a thing. Stay with us.
0: It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan. Thanks for being here. You know, uh, this is quite the phenomenon on TikTok if you've been watching. A young woman walking around essentially asking people what they do and how much they make. Uh, Hannah Williams was in a job. Felt she was underpaid, didn't know what everybody else made, and ended up starting this account, and it's got 850,000 followers. She calls it Salary Transparent Street, and she's 25 years old. Here she is.
6: Let's go ask people what they do and how much they make.
1: I install flooring. Cool.
6: How much do you make?
2: I make about 1200 a week.
6: Cool. And what's your dream job?
2: My dream job
1: is
5: to be a lifeguard. I'm an investigative analyst. Oh,
3: cool! How much do you make?
1: I make like fifty thousand a year.
3: Nice. And how much debt do you have?
1: I have none. It's personal stuff, personal questions. So, what do you guys think of this? Uh, Seven ten ten. Text us in. Uh, Should everyone know what everyone makes? Um, it's not some. It's not something that people normally talk about. She says it should be. This should be normal. And she says the more she learned about the gender pay gap, the race pay gap, I was like, this has to be a thing. Um, so a lot of younger people are pushing this. California is requiring people, companies that have 15 staff or more, to post a salary range for open positions. TikTokers and Gen Z are pushing this. Um, this article quotes a, an assistant professor at uh, Berkeley. Uh, it talks... It, he talks about the fact that it's about your self worth. Nobody wants to be making too much, and nobody wants to be making too little because you feel like you're an outlier. If you're in the middle, if you're if you're in that range, it says something about uh, about how the company feels about you. So it's interesting, you know, here in Ontario, early days of Mike Harris's government, they published the Sunshine List. For the first time, one of the first governments to do this. And now lots of governments do it. And you'll know that that, every year that comes out and it it requires governments in Ontario and government agencies to reveal every person's salary who makes over $100,000 a year. And they call it the sunshine list because it spreads, you know, public accountability. So each year they you know they publish who's the top earner how much are they making at hydro one and all the electricity companies you know and Steve Pakin, a broadcaster at TVO famously says he he should get all the broadcast journalists to thank him because at the time his salary was revealed it was quite high at the time i forget what the number is and every year people in my industry kept checking the Pakin salary and going in to negotiate their own so he gets credit, he thinks, for raising salaries. I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly something that people are very aware of. And But it is, it's is—it's touchy. It's touchy for some people. No one should know your salary unless you work for the federal government, one texture says. People should keep in mind if they're stupid enough to tell people what they make, They're not going to get a raise anytime soon. The people who are jealous will get the raise first. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Um, I I do think though, and okay, people are going to say, "Oh, like here I am, I'm hosting a radio show and I anchor television news, you know, and I do other, like, you know, I'm talking about myself here. So how do you monetize? Like, how do you value that? Like, what about other things? Like, it's not just a... It's not just a job description. And I know that sounds like an excuse, right? That sounds like an excuse that, uh, you know, you want to keep it hidden. But, you know, the other thing, the other point of all of this is, is that businesses and managers can take advantage of this cloak of secrecy. They say it's about privacy, but in some cases it allows them to underpay other people, even at the top end. If everybody's secret about how much they make, uh, and the managers are the only people who know, who's to stop them from offering less and less as new people come in the door? That's the argument against it. Ridiculous, and I hope this doesn't become a trend. It's no one's business. This says more about the askee than the askor. It should, somebody else text in. It should absolutely be made public, especially in the workplace. This puts the power back into the employee's hands and it doesn't have them get caught short, the short end of the stick. Employers will always try to save money, even if it's on the backs of their employees. That's Mike from Montreal. Thanks, Mike. If she asked me, I'd never be honest. Way too personal, says Windsor. Um Yeah. I I think that it it's 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 kind of it's kind of something that I I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. I. I think everybody's right. I think everybody's right. I think employers do take advantage of it. The secrecy of it all, um, and allows them a certain amount of power. But I also think that completely exposing everything. Um. I yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, Chris is on the line from Peterborough. Chris, thanks for calling in. Where are you on this? Do you, Do you think everybody should disclose their salary in the workplace
6: I think they should because then you're, you're right everybody's going to be treated fairly because uh, unfortunately my wife works in an industry where she's informed uh, I guess it's uh, I guess it's not I guess it's a law from my understanding I was talking to your screener that uh, she's not allowed to disclose her wage because they're on a proficiency thing so uh, every year they get pulled in the office and they either get a raise or don't get a raise due to the proficiency and they're not supposed to uh, explain or expose to other people how much they actually made on that raise if they did or didn't get a raise
1: so that is an incentive thing and the managers decided is that the deal
6: yes Ah. they they check everybody out and then bring them in and if they feel that they didn't meet their standard that year then they don't get a raise is it subject but it it sounds that sounds
1: pretty subjective that sounds pretty subjective
6: and that's how it's working. I know not in a lot of industries, but I imagine there'll be other listeners that'll probably call in and say the same thing that's happening. And they're not allowed to explain or expose how much they actually make an hour.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the call. Appreciate that, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah. So there's the uh, there's the double edged sword to get another text here from Montreal. We have a company policy not to talk about pay or bonuses. I'm not surprised Gen Z wants to be transparent. If they really want to know, people working under a year can compare amongst themselves if they want, but why should someone working one year for a company know what someone working 20 years makes? I think, I hear what you're saying, but I think the argument would be that one-year employee realizes, hey, if I put 20 years in and I'm a valued employee, that's the level I'm going to be at. And if I know that the people beside me are all paid in a similar way it evens out the playing field maybe 25 years ago this is niagara falls 25 years ago my profession would never be on the sunshine list but it hasn't been updated for inflation i'm on the sunshine list now and no i always want to be at the high end of my pay spectrum okay so yeah that's the other thing too right they should have no politician will do it these lists Like $100,000 in mid 90s is not $100,000 in 2022, obviously. What they should do is they should raise that standard uh, to, I don't know, pick a number, 150 or 180. Anybody above 180 gets on the list and anybody below it doesn't. Because the idea was back then to, you know, to reveal how much the taxpayers were paying these various people um, and how much the salaries were but they set it at $100,000. So I'm a female engineer. This is interesting. I'm a female engineer. I share my salary with fellow female engineers so that they know their worth. Women are underpaid, and this is how men encourage it. There is a very different perspective on this when you come at it from gender. I'm glad you texted in, and that is a very, very good point that I didn't mention, um, and I should have. So that's a good point. Wages or salary above starting should be on an employee's worth and effort. Everyone's salary should be public. Everyone. Because of last year's census, only 30% are paying tax. We need transparency. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. We're back after the break. Stay with us.
0: This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan here's Graham Richardson on the
1: iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back, everybody. Listen, if you've got people in your family or friends at work who play pickleball and you're tired of hearing it, and you don't play pickleball, turn the radio off. Pickleball is outstanding. It's outstanding. It's. Uh, we have a league here at the station. That has just exploded in popularity. Um, Yesterday. Or this week. uh, LeBron James announced. That. He's a part of a consortium. Which is buying an expansion franchise. In Major League Pickleball. They're going from 12 teams. To 16 teams. And this sport. If you don't know. Is absolutely exploding in popularity. Like. Nothing really we've seen before. This is not a fad. It is ju- It just keeps growing and growing. Uh, joining us now to talk about this is Seymour Rifkin, president and founder of the International Pickleball Teaching Professional Association and president of the Pickleball Hall of Fame. Seymour, great to have you on. Thanks for being here.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Graham.
1: Tell me about, from your perspective, what is it about this sport that that is really taking off? And what does this deal mean for the sport as a whole?
2: So, look, any time you can get uh, a sport affiliated and associated with somebody like LeBron James or any of the other major Hollywood stars or athletes, uh, it helps to, simply from a publicity standpoint. Uh, and, you know, the more eyeballs, the more uh, people that see pickleball, the more people that hear about pickleball, uh, all of that's great for our sport. Uh, but, you know, the, the sport itself sells itself, and that's why whether you uh, live in a ghetto and you're having a hard time, there are people that are playing pickleball out in the streets by simply chalking up uh, a, a court, uh, you know, in the streets or on a driveway. Uh, I've been at the most exclusive clubs in the world, and they're playing pickleball. So, you know, this is a sport where money uh, is really not an a, uh, encumbrance to uh, entry. Yeah, uh, you can play it any place uh, on almost any type of hard surface. I mean, the game's been played on carpet. It's been played on wood basketball floors, and then of course on on true tennis t- court type surfaces, which is where most of the uh, you know biggest tournaments in the world are played.
1: And y- we had a bit of trouble with your line. It just cleared up, so apologies for the sound there. But we got most of it. Um, your uh, uh, a very accomplished player, but my other, what I found when I started it was if you have any level of racket skill, you can pick this up quite quickly and become quite competitive.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you've got, if you've played ping pong, you know, racquetball, squash, tennis, badminton, uh, you'll get pickleball in 15 minutes. And most importantly, you'll start having fun. But, you know, even if you have no racket experience, I mean, I've worked with five and six year old kids and they're smiling and laughing and, and, and hitting the ball back and forth within five minutes. And I've played with eighty five year olds that went through their entire life saying, you know, I, I don't like sports. I've never been involved in sports. And then all of a sudden they they are course to get on the pickleball court and they're having a blast and laughing as mm. well. It's an easy, easy game to develop early success at. And I think that's one of the biggest attractions, you know, of, of, of the game.
1: What is the name about? I get that a lot. Why did they name it Pickleball? Do you know?
2: I do know uh, because I'm uh, the founder and president of the Pickleball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I had opportunity to speak with our, you know, last surviving inventor of the game, uh, Barney McCollum. Uh, and there has been controversy on it. Uh, initially, uh, Barney being a promoter, uh, came up with the idea of pickleball because, um, and this is not the true story, but, uh, he wrote an article in the paper, uh, that it was named after, uh, pickles, the dog, Mm -hmm. uh, but pickles, the dog actually came about two years after the game was invented. The game, uh, was called pickleball, uh, because, uh Senator Pritchard's wife, uh Joan, uh who was there uh when the game was first invented. Their kids didn't have anything to do. Uh they were on at their uh summer home um, in Bainbridge Island off the uh, uh coast of uh the state of Washington and uh they uh, had a badminton court at their house uh but they didn't have any birdies. Uh, They had a ping-pong table, but they uh, broke the last ping-pong ball. So uh, Joel went out there in the garage and said, well, you know, here's a wiffle ball, and uh, take the paddle, uh, the ping-pong paddle, and just hit the ball over the the badminton net. And uh, that's how the game initiated. And because uh, Joan and the family were into boating, the uh, And, and uh, uh, rowboats or uh, crew, I guess, is what it, the accurate term is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last boat that goes out is call, called the pickleball because it's made up of just the leftovers from the people uh, that didn't make the other boats. And because pickleball or this game they invented was made up of leftover equipment, uh, she came up with the term pickleball.
1: There you go. There you go. Um, I hear this all the time. It's only old people who play this. This is not true. Um, Where is the growth now in the game? So the
2: biggest growth in the game is between the 17 to 25 year uh, demographic. The reason you hear that the uh, game is predominantly for the seniors is because in the United States, uh, shortly after the game was invented, those that... uh, initially got exposed to the game, were in the Pacific Northwest. And as they uh, retired and moved down into Florida and uh, Arizona and California, they moved into senior communities. And, of course, because they grew up playing pickleball, they started pickleball uh, clubs in these senior facilities. And it exploded, Mm -hmm. absolutely exploded. Uh, So the, the initial growth was all with seniors. But as we've discovered here over the last seven, eight years, any segment that gets introduced to pickleball immediately falls in love with the game, and that's what's currently happening amongst grade school children and, in particular, the 17- to uh, 25-year demographic. It's pretty evenly proportioned right now in in all the demographics as far as the uh, uh, amount of, of players in each segment.
1: Seymour Rifkin, really appreciate your time talking about pickleball and uh, it's an international explosion out there, particularly in the United States and throughout North America. Thank you very much.
2: You're very welcome. Have a great day. You
1: too. That's Seymour Rifkin. I played pickleball last night and uh, we were eight of us on two courts, a local court here, indoor court that they put up last year that has just been wildly popular. There might've been beverages in the parking lot afterwards. And, uh, eight of us and it was even, and it was intense. We played for about an hour and a half and it's just a great sport. Keep an open mind. Uh, and, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like a combination. Everybody, it's kind of like a combination of ping pong or table tennis, badminton and a, and a smaller court than tennis. And then there's this, this kitchen line that you can't step into when you're playing the ball. So what that does is, especially, and mostly it's played doubles. So it shrinks the playing surface and the volleys and the rallies. Um, it's, it's high reflex game and the volleys and the rallies can be just unbelievable. And that's part of the attraction of the game. And as Seymour said, as soon as you start it, you get a, you, you, you get a sense that, hey, I can actually compete at this and it can be a lot of fun. And so I, I can't say enough about it. It, it, it. We talk about it so much on the air, television and radio here in Ottawa, the bosses have kind of said no more pickleball talk and then the today, and then the today show had their own team on. And then, and then it's like, it's in the New York newspapers. Cause there's a fight in, in New York city parks over, over too much pickleball crowding kids out. And I'm like, come on boss. This is like, you know, this is sweeping that he doesn't want to hear anything about it. So, but we're on Evan's show. So I'm going to blame evan that we were allowed to talk about pickleball because it's not just the ottawa crowd okay it's not my fault it's a national show when we come back we'll talk to dan riskin not about pickleball about uh the latest in science technologies science and technology stay with us i'm graham richardson in for evan (laughs) solomon
0: The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. It's a dream, man. The headline is Riskin' It all. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin.
1: Welcome back. We're going to talk to Dan Riskin about the future of hearing. Dan, great to talk to you. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, this is uh, not necessarily surprising, but I'll tell you why, uh, about where the placement of the hearing aid is. They're talking about inside the mouth. Tell me about this and, and why uh, why it's a, it's a possibility.
7: Wait, wait, wait. When I read that they were talking about putting hearing aids in people's mouths, I thought that was surprising, but you say you don't think that's
1: surprising? So people who know me, I talk about this too much. I'm a cyclist, but um, some cyclists have this new form of... Uh, a headphone that, that plants on the side of the cheek, not in the ear. In your
7: mouth or outside your
1: mouth? Outside, outside. Okay. But, but but that's why this didn't surprise me because the connection to the mouth versus the ear. the bone conduction. The bone conduction thing. Yeah. And I've never tried them, but they swear by them because they can hear outside and hear music at the same time. I don't know. So, yeah,
7: it's interesting. Uh, I once uh, demoed some of the... So I used to work on Daily Planet on Discovery Channel. We had something called High Tech Toys Week where we yeah. would have okay. these all these toys brought into the studio from all over the place, you know, crazy things. And they had some of these and we were ready to put them on and show, show how great they worked. And when I put them on, I couldn't hear a thing. And so then we had to take it off because I couldn't reliably look into the camera and say, these are amazing. These these work. I can hear anything. No, none of that. So we ended up, it may have just been a bad model, Mm. but yes, I do know that bone conduction is kind of this like new frontier in terms of hearing. So So yeah, the idea here is to take the hearing aid, make it not such a big thing on the side of the head or even in the ear canal uh, to to try to move that machinery so that it doesn't stand out as much. And uh, the inside of the mouth is a good uh, candidate place for uh, some apparatus to go because it's it's hidden there. And so um, the idea that they have is what they want to do is if somebody gets a tooth replacement, uh, where you're already putting a false tooth and you're you're attaching it to the bone, you're you're putting it in place, mm-hmm. uh, anchoring it, so that it's going to be a, a solid attachment. Maybe that's a good place to have a speaker. So maybe you've got a microphone outside somewhere uh, that the person wears, and then that connects through radio frequency, perhaps, and then goes to the speaker that's inside the mouth that then amplifies the sound and vibrates the tooth slash the mouth slash the head and then sends those sound waves to the hearing apparatus which is inside your head and uh and that would work and so this was a test of of uh basically are would you be sensitive to those sounds and so all they did for this study was to just hold a vibrating thing up against people's false teeth Mm. that are anchored into their mouths and it's a a basically a bone conduction vibrator and they played music with it and and looked at how sensitive what kind of volume people needed to hear it and found that it worked quite well uh lower jaw or upper jaw worked just fine uh front of the mouth was a little bit more sensitive than the back of the mouth uh which was a bit of a surprise but nonetheless it seems like a technology that could be uh worth working on
1: because part of the resistance, of course, is that people can see hearing aids and they connect all sorts of things with it. Oh, you're aging, you're older and people, yeah. people just don't like that. So they tend to just not wear them and they miss out on a lot. If it's not visible, that, that would be a big boost
7: yeah absolutely and for the person who's perceiving it and, and maybe more for the person who feels self conscious having it i mean but but either way it's a possibility now there are a lot of questions i mean so sure. what if the battery dies do i have to get a tooth replacement like how does that all come together and if it can be open to replace the battery uh, you know, is is does that create hazards in the mouth, and do I have to be careful about it? Uh, do I treat it just like other teeth when I'm brushing? Uh, you know, all these kinds of questions come up. But uh, it's it's that it's that slow migration towards becoming bionic that uh, that many people might be making. Mm. Um, it's a neat idea for sure. And you know what? From an evolutionary perspective, it's it's extra neat because the bones in our ears, in the middle ear, the hammer, the incus, and the stapes, the, those three bones that transmit sounds in the middle ear right after the eardrum, those actually, they have their origins as jaw bones. And it's thought that the first vertebrates that came up on land, Sense the vibrations by putting their jaw on the floor mm. and feeling the footsteps of dinosaurs and other things and that that's where the vibration sensitivity came in and then over evolutionary time those bones became specialized for sensing vibrations got smaller and moved up into the head and different bones came and became part of the jaw so the the bones that we have in our middle ear are the uh the homologues to the, to the bones that are in fishes that work as the jaw. So it's, there's a neat, long history between the jaw and hearing that makes this kind of a satisfying story for me to tell.
1: Wow. Um, I didn't know that of course, about, about our ancestors coming up and listening, uh, on, so the, the thinking is, is that they would press their, uh, head lie down with their jaw on the ground to to hear for safety.
7: for all the things we use hearing for now and then it just got more and more so when you're underwater sound is super easy to pick up because the sound travels through everything sound goes through water like four times faster Mm -hmm. um and so fish can hear fish make lots of noises um but some of the fish came up on land and when they did they were these weird alligator looking things like the the famous fossil Tiktaalik and other ones like it and once they came up on land Um, they would have had a body that was built to sense sound in water. And so it would have been very hard to sense airborne sounds. And so, the sounds that travel through the ground would have been more akin to the stuff that traveled through water. So the thought is that they first sort of started sensing those vibrations on the ground by putting their jaw on the ground. And then they s- slowly adapted over time to become used to those airborne sounds. And for that, you need a, a smaller bone that's, that bounces a little bit better and that's a little bit more, um, a little lighter. And then the the eardrum would have come in after that and the whole thing moved into the head. And, and that's what we've got now. So it's a neat evolutionary pr- progression. And it's cool that now when we're we're talking about how to fix people's hearing that's, you know, that's been lost. We're talking about going back to the
1: jaw. I just Mm. think it's, it's a neat poetic thing. Dan Riskin, always great to talk to you. We learn stuff all the time. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. That's Dan Riskin. Um, I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon, wrapping up the show in just a moment, but we did get some texts on pickleball. So I got to answer that. I got to pickleball reminds me of the 90s movie basketball blew up in popularity everyone everybody wanted to play it it is blowing up in popularity. pickleball is like lawn bowling you have to be 100 years old to play it that's not nice and it's not true Um, yes it's a lot of fun unfortunately it's noisy as heck play on it is noisy pickleball is an unfortunate name and then pickleball is going to be massive i agree with that last one it is going to be massive It already is. It already is in my city. They've, and most cities now they're painting all the pickleball lines on the tennis courts and, uh, they're building facilities for indoor pickleball because the demand is so high. Um, in Ottawa here, there's one main one now, and it's jammed in the winter. It's not jammed in the summer because there's outdoor courts, but anyway, there you go, thoughts on pickleball to finish uh, the show. It's been great to be here. Um. Yeah, uh, one of the things that stands out with me on this program was our discussion in Newfoundland with Corey Munden. Let's not forget those people in Port Basque, Newfoundland and Labrador. If you can help, please do. The government is matching donations through the Red Cross. They're doing that, um, and it's much needed. Uh, Corey pointed out his family. His parents have been there for three generations, and they are not insured because it was a storm surge. And his father attempted to, um, in the in the last few months, attempted to put in. Landscaping and walls and things like that to protect the home against just this sort of thing. and it all washed into the home. Just uh, just a devastating situation. He put out a call in Newfoundland to have people help him move. Dozens showed up, including people who had lost everything. Thanks for being here. I'm Graham Richardson. Have a great day.